Put down your paintbrush. It's time for Hobby Support Group. Hello, Andy. Hey, Tom. How you doing? I'm fine, thank you. And yourself? Uh, I'm a bit tired. I've been busily getting ready for young William's uh, birthday party. And it's a surprising amount of work for a seven-year-old's birthday party in bags and pinatas and all different kinds of things ready. Hijinks all around, I assume. <laughs> Very much so. So what do we have coming up on today's show? Of our usual stuff, Tom, we have, uh, you know, um, what we've been up to, what we painted, um, hobby news, purchases, listener question, games we've played. Oh, so much to talk about, Tom. I'm looking forward to it. Well, let's jump in then with Hobby Progress. Hobby Progress. I think you're going to be the uh, the busiest of us, Tom. I've not got much hobby uh, progress uh, this episode, unfortunately. Um, I've been, as I said, I've been a bit busy, but I um, I was given some lovely beastmen, some some Minotaur and beastmen classic models by our dear listener Ed, and uh, I've already managed to paint four Minotaurs. Oh, nice. Um, and the other beastmen are so close to being finished, it's annoying because if I'd managed to get an hour or two last night, I would have finished off the rest of the beastmen, but it just wasn't to be. I had to, uh, had too much housework to do. Sometimes life says, uh, says no, but uh, I'll definitely have them finished shortly. Well, real life does always sort of take precedence over hobbying, doesn't it, really? <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. It's true. Um, so I think you're, you, you've been up to quite a lot, as I recall, Tom. Uh, finished two armies. Um, Lovely. I finished the uh, 1937 Sino-Japanese-War-themed Japanese army. And I also finished the sort of late-war island defence Japanese army, which uses several of the same minis. Mm-hmm. And over the weekend, I managed to get all my Japanese tanks and vehicles finished, just waiting for the transfers for them, but they haven't arrived yet. Yeah, um, I thought they looked really good, Tom. I liked them. Side note, it, it's something, if you're picking up like 3D printed or resin vehicles from sellers where they don't come with transfers, Make sure you buy the transfers before you start painting them, because now you know they're sat on my painting table waiting for the post. Because um, I just didn't realise I didn't have enough transfers for them. But I'm not something I always forget. Oh, sorry, Tom. Sorry, go on, Andy. Something I always forget is you put the transfers on, and then you do the weathering. Yes. <laughs> I always ah oh, weathered them up. They look great. They're fantastic. Right now, I put this. Transfers. Oh, like, yeah, wrong way. Nice, <laughs> nice crisp transfers on this old, beaten up, weathered vehicle. Don't <laughs> yeah. have to go and weather just the transfers. It's so much easier. Just put the transfers on, and then do all your chips and weathering and powders and stuff. That's a top tip. That's number one top tip of the show. Write that down, guys. I, I'm really, really pleased with how the infantry and the uh, guns and like the team weapons came out. I'm really, really pleased with those. I think they look 
really nice. Not very happy with how the tanks came out. Um, because of I like the tanks. I liked them. Did you use an airbrush for them? Did I did use stripes? A, I did use an airbrush for them. And if I if they were German tanks, I'd be really, really super happy. Because why I'm not really that happy with them is they're supposed to be two shades of brown and green. Mm-hmm. And as I've weathered them up, you sort of you can't really tell the difference between the two shades of brown. It's, ah. sort of, it's almost like it's gone. And the camo has sort of like, it's bled in. All the colours are sort of melded quite well. So they, sort of, they don't really pop that well. And obviously ah. you don't want camouflage to pop. But when you look in the reference photos, some of them are quite sort of, muted and do blend but others of them are like really sharp stark edges yeah and after i looked at it, i thought i could remask it all and either brush paint it or respray it and start again but i also thought i risk then you know it'll be an extra two or three layers of paint on the top and then you sort of is it worth painting over risk losing some detail and I'm not stripping them and starting again. <clears throat> so I figured they can stay as they are. Um, I not- liked them, Tom. I thought they were good. And you know what? You know, There's always that slight difference, isn't there, between pictures and vehicles and real life and stuff. So, you know. I think, I think so. Much. And also, I, I do have to be mindful. Like, I know basically nothing about Japanese camo. Like, I haven't read very much about it i've looked at some reference photos i've looked at some pictures and it's like right okay i'll try and do that and i I know i've tried to make them uh sort of like period specific schemes but again i i'm not super happy with them but as i just said i'm not upset enough to strip them or do them again I remember when I was doing that Panzer three, and I made it look. I followed it like the instructions. Looked at followed the instructions. Looked at the re- resource material and tried to make it like someone had just got a mop, dipped it in a green paint, and wiped wiggly lines on the side. Yeah. And it looked. I thought. I was like, oh, this looks terrible. But yeah, the real thing looked terrible. <laughs> it was really quickly, you know, um, like some 16, 70 year old lad had grabbed a mop and slashed some green paint on the side of a tank uh, with a mop. And that's kind of what it looked like. It just it didn't look good, but the real thing didn't look good. So, you know, don't be too harsh with yourself if it's, um, you know, the, no. the, the real tanks didn't always look fantastic. No, and sort of like, another sort of saving grace for them is because they're an incredibly muddy and mucky environments i've been able to like go to town on the mud and grime weathering so you know like all the tracks and running gear and everything are slathered in mud so i think they will look they'll look fine when they're on the table absolutely if in doubt if your tank's not looking great it just just chuck a load of mud on its tracks and stuff that's how you get heads of tracks to fit you just chuck a load of mud on them <laughs> yeah it's like where was it? When was it really muddy? Right, that'll do. We'll fit them in mud. It's like, what does dry caked mud look like to fit this gap in the tracks? Um, 
but also sort of finishing these two armies sort of looking at them now they're both finished sort of led me to make a hobby purchase so unless you have any more hobby progress oh we... i've done i've done so little hobby progress tom we should just go on to uh, yeah get on to purchases hobby purchases so unlike the last few weeks i've actually bought something this last fortnight Ooh, you might have spent more money than me tom so i bought the whole pdf and hard copy of rain in hell yep from war games vault because it was not for you buy the soft back you get a free copy of the pdf so i bought that that was 15 and then Looking at these two Japanese armies that I've finished painting and now looking at them on the table split up, split up I sort of realised that while they are the armies I wanted to build, they didn't give me really any room for experimentation or playing around with sort of squads or loadouts. They were sort of, you can play these two armies as five units of veterans. You can't, I didn't have literally enough bodies to do, right, what if we do five big units of regulars? Yeah. Or what if I want 11-man squads instead of nine? And I sort of mm-hmm. just didn't have enough bodies. Yeah. So I have ordered a box of uh, Special Naval Landing Force mm-hmm. dudes, which will be like a little third ancillary army that I can sort of drop in a couple of squads into either army because they will both I'll do one squad in field caps and one squad in the camo netted hats yeah and then I can sort of drop them into either army and then use the the spare bodies just as more generic riflemen to bulk out the other two armies which will sort of give me a lot more room to play around and experiment which is a Something that I really enjoy doing with armies that I play a lot of. And I think specifically like the Japanese army, it's it gives you enough sort of scope to play around with things like, you know, what would like a 14 man fanatic regular squad be like to play <laughs> with? Um, I know, but you're pretty horrible to fight against. Yeah, so it's sort of like I think just having those extra bodies. And so, as I said, I bought a it was 18 pounds. Bought a box of those. You know, they they won't really take up any extra room because they'll fit in the tray with the other dudes, and they will give me, you know, two full armies with whatever options I want to play, and technically a third army if I just wanted to play special naval landing force. Mm-hmm. You know, the man with many bolt action armies adds a third one, what was supposed to be a single army project. Yep, but I hear that. that. <laughs> that is my hobby purchases, which comes in at thirty-two pounds. But I did also sell two hundred and ten pounds worth of thirty k stuff. So I'm sort of my hobby budget for the year is not looking too bad now. So uh, I thought I was finally going to beat you, Tom, and you're telling me that actually you're on like minus how much? I know. I still I, I'm not deducting 
Well, I th- I'm not deducting that. I think that's a bit cheeky. I'm still counting it as money spent. <laughs> okay. So I spent £32. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, yay! <laughs> Spoilers. I win. Uh, <laughs> so after last episode, when I said I wasn't going to play Rain of Hell, Rain of Hell, um, Ed gave me a load of classic uh, Beastmen and those Minotaurs, and I thought, well, these are perfect, aren't they? Like with beast heads and horns and goats so these are perfect for doing demons so i have purchased drain in hell yay Ooh. so i bought that for 15 pounds i went for the hard copy and the pdf version because i like hard copy rule books yeah and i think that's kind of like something that's gonna be fun to play at the club just for a little while i don't think we'll play it forever but it'll be fun to play for a little while um oh, d- hmm? No, I think definitely. I think it's definitely something we might, you know, play it. You know, we might have like one or two games of it or something like that. Yeah, one yeah. campaign. I don't think it's going to be the the only game we ever play now. But um, yep, we'll try that out. Let's see how we're going. And I bought some card sleeves for Keyforge. So that was um, ten pounds there. So I spent twenty five pounds. So, which is pretty good for me. Not bad. Mm-hmm. So I win. You win this. You you <laughs> win in, in in a non-competitive in a non-competitive segment. Well, normally <laughs> I win the non. Well, normally it's uh, how what do you spend, Tom? Oh, I I feel really bad, says Tom. I I spent three pounds on a paint. I'm really sorry, everyone. And I'm like, I spent two million pounds. It's like ah, so it's just nice for once that I only spent you know twenty five quid. <laughs> One, I think I'll try and spend nothing by next episode, but actually, I I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> hobby news. So I suppose the biggest hobby news for the wider hobbying community will be the release of the new version of Age of Sigmar. Absolutely, I mean it, it's everywhere. You can't have um, you can't have missed it. It's out there. So many videos. I did enjoy uh, Brent at Goobertown did his unboxing video. Did you see that one? No, I haven't seen that one. So he basically, he got the box and he unboxed it and he went, yep, everything was in the box. I've unboxed it. It was all there, just like it said on the box. <laughs> and then he said, you know, I got this 24, um, like 40 hours ago. Games Workshop. I literally, you know, if they dropped it a little bit earlier, he and people like him could make more content, like actually get the models painted, um, play the rules. And he said, how can you expect me to do a, a review without having played the game, the new rules? I mean, I can literally unbox it, but you know what's going to be in the box and you know what the miniatures are going to look like. So, like, what's the value? And he said, you could actually make it more exciting when this, there's an embargo. You can't release videos to a certain day. So it actually could be of more value to the community to have the day when that embargo that that day when the the content create the free content creators online reveal all the stuff they've done with the box that could be more exciting than release day like the announcement that the game is coming because they could have had like amazing conversions but have the models painted in new and you know like people like duncan what could duncan do with a box you know if he had like two weeks to paint up the model duncan from the, the old GW painter or someone like Squidmile, you know, real, real good painters. 
uh, people who do great battle reports and conversion. Uh, imagine what it could be like. But they give him so little time to do anything with it. He's like, kind of just did a bit of a jokey video, which I found amusing. <laughs> at least him going at the end going, yep, everything was in the box <laughs> that they said was going to be there. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway. Well, I, I think GW are sort of trying. I think they are trying different things to sort of see what works best because i know in, in they've brought in a new thing where you have to like if you go on their web store on release saturday mm -hmm. you sort of you get in a queue for what you can buy yeah. and it's i think that they're, they're trying to like stop the scalpers of like, oh the first person in buys a hundred copies of something yeah no one else can buy any yeah which i think you know credit to them and i, I think this dominus box set is it the age of sigmar Mm -hmm. I believe so, yeah. You know, like that you were still able to sort of buy that on Saturday afternoon. And, mm -hmm. you know, even just like a few weeks ago, if something came out at 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning, it was sold out by five past 10. So yeah. I think that they've sort of definitely sort of improved things. And, you know, people can buy what they want. And they've released the core rules for Age of Sigmar for free. Oh, that's interesting. Um, you can now like download the core rules for free. Um, I think you then like you buy in. I think the rules you then buy are like the war scrolls for the specific units and armies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But um, as I I am under the impression that when you buy a box of troops or whatever, they come with mm -hmm. the war scroll in the box. Oh yeah, yeah. So not an Age of Sigmar player haven't really looked into it at all i know we've mentioned this before in the cast but hopefully we will get an age of sigma player on at some point to chat about it um the the main take i seem to have heard sort of people talking about it is the main change for this edition is more two wound models and sort of like smaller elite squads mm -hmm. which and the points uh, per model I've got more expensive. So, you know, that and that's interesting because be... it's normally it goes the other way so they can get you to put more models on the table. It, is it, are they moving towards less models, but those models are bigger and tougher? Do you think? I think so. I think it's getting more. Again, this could be wrong, but from what I understand, it's more you're going towards the idea of this is a five man or, you know, like five gribbly squad. Uh, with like several wounds each rather than like 10 or more it's like this is five but possibly also you know you get five in the box yeah so um you know swings yeah. and roundabouts it's like i i think when you look at old white dwarves and that sort of thing and you see this is a right this is a full like two thousand point army and you've got like a rhino two tax squads a predator maybe some devastators or something else you go yeah that's in a way a, a lot more i think a, a more fun game really it's mm -hmm. a more practical club game than yeah this is like a 500 point kill team i do i do recall um me and my friend james hey james uh we used to play like really low point like 500 point games because it was just quicker to set up and it was more we found it more fun to play as small games than we ever did the bigger ones 
I get maybe because we grew up playing those um, smaller armies in like second edition, but we we would actually deliberately like half the points, so we'd have less stuff. But everything made a difference, you know. When you got when you have every tool in the kitchen kitchen drawer free to use on the tabletop, it, it, there's less choices to be made. Well, I think that's something definitely to be said about army building, and it's something that we didn't really talk about last episode when we were talking about army building but uh when, when we were building our armies we didn't really talk too much about like the theory behind how we build armies but like mm-hmm. i know i know whenever i build an army i always like sort of a plan a for how to deal with something a plan b and then a plan c mm-hmm. and you know plan c might quite often be for if we take bolt action it's always like right how do i deal with veterans how do I deal with team weapons? How do I deal with armor? So it's like the Japanese army I'm playing, right? How do I deal with armor? First plan, suicide AT guys. Second plan, flamethrower team. Third plan, ignore it. Yeah. And you know, how do I deal with veterans? First plan, medium howitzer. Second plan, heavy mortar. Third plan, charging with one of the larger veteran squads. Mm-hmm. And I think that's all, when you've got those like, you know, you've got your first, you've got backups for backups. When you're playing those much smaller games, you don't have that opportunity. You have to just, you know, ev- as you said, everything is more important and more on the nose. Yeah. You know, if you lose your predator, then you've, if, you know, that's your only last cannons. You've lost your ability to take out armor. Yeah. But also, then, uh, if he's got less points and he's spent it on armor, then it, that's more important as well for him. Yeah, if you go into a GW shop, then you're able to bypass the queue. So you can go into an actual brick and mortar GW store and pre-order your stuff instantaneously without being in the queue, which I think is is a good way of generating footfall in the actual shops. GW can find a way to get people to go back into shops and fantastic. Yeah, because I've got, I find it really very difficult to sort of comprehend how any GW shop really generates any income at all. Because especially like you buy anything, you buy GW stuff from anywhere else other than the brick and mortar stores. It's 20% off. It's it's cheaper to buy everywhere else from the shop. And I know, like at one point from my house here, I could walk to three different GW stores. Yeah, and they've now all closed those three, yeah. and yeah. yet other ones pop up somewhere else. And hopefully, this will actually give them a bit more permanence and actually allow some community to sort of grow up around those stores. Because for a lot of people. Especially if you're a younger child, if you're a younger child, young teenager, playing in the store is, is where you you start playing. It's yep, yep. You know, it's a lot easier to go in your, your local GW shop and get a game than it is to go into a club and get a game. Yeah, you know, especially if you know if you're a twelve year old, it's I, I would say it's you know, or even younger. <laughs> Um, like many gamers, I used to work for Games Workshop um, 20 years ago. 
and there was like five or six of us working in a shop. And now they seem to mostly be like one man shows, one yeah. man shops. So they have been reducing them down the, the the costs of the stores to make them more viable. And I think it's such an important gateway into building a community. So it's like almost like a lost leader for them, perhaps to have just a way to you know to get people involved in the hobby, draw people in. Uh, you can go in in person, meet someone at the store. The guy at the store can show you, oh, these are the paintings. This is how you get started. I know people find out through YouTube videos and so on. But I think, you know, there's nothing quite like human contact. Um, you know, no. that's it's, it's a grassroots thing to get new blood into the hobby. Yeah. It's fantastic. And there's there's nothing like being taught how to play a game for the first time. By somebody who actually knows how to play the game, yeah. Because I know, like, when I've tried to teach people to play games or played games with people who aren't gamers, you sort of realise there is so much gaming sort of jargon and sort of assumed knowledge. You just go, oh, you say, oh, roll a d6, and they look like at you like you're an alien. It's like the six-sided dice roll that, um, and just you know, oh, what's the toughness? What's the wounds? Being able to sort of take those through in baby steps by somebody who is, you know, in some way trained to teach and engage it is just, I think, an invaluable lesson. And, you know, I'm really grateful for the GW stores I used to go to as a kid that yeah. taught me how to play games. Yeah, I know. Um, my manager, hey, Steve, uh, if he's listening, <laughs> um, my painting, I used, to dry, I used to just dry brush it, wash it. That was all I used to do. And, like, we actually shown we showed how to do like highlights like my painting was improved um infinitely you know by by being actually shown how to paint by my manager in the store um you know fantastic it's not just yeah so many things you can you can learn yeah so moving on to hobby news out of curiosity tom what do you think of the models in the box um I actually really quite like the new interpretation on the goblins and the orcs, like making them a bit less goofy, a bit more humanistic. I think I, I really do quite like them. I think they don't scream like Warhammer orc or goblin yeah. to me. They They look like I think they would be more... Like a Tolkien-esque half orc sort of a thing. That's it. Yeah, they, uh, I get seventies, like eighties Dungeons and Dragons Tolkien style orcs more than I do GW orcs. Yeah, the, for me they are definitely like an orc with a C rather than an orc with a K. Yeah. Um, I do like them, and like I, I wouldn't be amiss to picking some of them up mm-hmm. at some point for other things like maybe rain in hell possibly yeah. I, I do think they are quite nice ones but i don't they don't really fit in that aesthetic for me of what is a especially goblins because i think like fantasy goblins are you know they're funny and they're, they're silly you know they're yeah. giant squigs and you know they've got bombs on chains and that sort of thing they aren't serious and grim yeah, I really like I really, really like the look of these new orcs. They look 
so much like um, old school fantasy orcs, um, not like the big beefcake muscle head sort of 40k orc that we've come to know, which has kind of been the, the look as well for the fantasy ones, which is kind of getting a bit of differentiation. And you get lots of different types of elf. Why shouldn't you get different types of, of orc as well? Um, I love them. I love the, the, the shields they have. They're, they're quite busy models. Um, I don't think I'm going to get any. I think I'm at the stage where I can go, they look good. I don't need to have to, I don't have to buy them just because they look really good. Um, and I've got all those Uruk Hyder paint as well already, so I've got enough orcs sitting around. Um, yeah, I just think, I think it's fantastic. And they've redesigned the Stormcast Eternals. And I never really was a big fan of the original ones. And these ones look a little bit, the proportions look a lot better. Uh, still, yeah, I, I, I'm not going to get any Stormcast Eternals either. But, um, yeah, for me, the Orcs, I really like them. I think they're the standout of the bunch. I really, talking about the shields on those Orcs, I think they are, like, a really cool and nice, like, homage to, sort of, like, the old metal, like, the the 80s metal Orcs, which had those, like, squig-faced shields. And that's, I I think that's a, a really cool nod of going, like, this is, like, inspired by older models but isn't a direct copy or isn't like a direct reimagining it's just sort of like yeah if you know it you know it if you don't it's just a cool shield design yeah because yeah. yeah, that was quite a thing wasn't it to have those sort of faces on the shields and yeah i know i really like them i think they're really nice again i think we said before gw do do the nicest models out there i just think that's a fact and um again they've done a really good job I'm not going to buy them, but I think they've done a really good job. Yeah, so talking about really nice models, uh, Rubicon have shown off what their latest release wave is going to be. Um, a new 11 kits. Again, so, um, filling out some more sort of later World War Two into sort of Korea and, you know, the Sort of early Cold War mm-hmm. era. Well, they're, they're sort of they're still gearing up and showing us lots and lots of things for the upcoming Vietnam range, mm-hmm. which I think we talked about this on the you know is wargaming moral segment. Sure. Yeah. Um, but I'd never really been interested in playing Vietnam, but seeing like some of these like the Huey models and that sort of thing actually. I could possibly see myself picking up some in the future if a game came out that I found interesting to play. Yeah. I think, and now coupled with the Empress uh, models as well, I think it could could possibly be a cool thing. But I would recommend anyone's interested in Rubicon, have a look at them. Also, they've uh, sorted out the stock troubles. So if you wanted one of their King Tigers... Uh, either with or without the Zimmerman, they're now in stock. So you know you can now get everything because for quite a while, uh, especially in the UK, it was mm-hmm. quite difficult to get quite a lot of the Rubicon kits earlier this year. But I checked yesterday, and everything seemed to be in stock. Other sort of World War Two sort of hobby news that's interesting to Andy and I is the possibility of Warlord doing some plastic Italians. Oh, uh, say it! Say it's true, surely, Tom. 
Um, Well, over the weekend, some pictures emerged on various hobby groups showing some sort of uh, greens, uh, sort of like mock-up greens and some sculpts of some various different types of uh, World War II Italians, Mm. supposedly, which will become part of a new plastic box set. Right. Um, I really, really want some plastic Italians. Mm -hmm. I think they are really needed in the hobby. Oh, long, long overdue, long overdue some some plastic Italians. I can't believe it's taken this long for anyone to make some. I mean, they haven't actually arrived yet either, but yeah. No, because you've probably got half a dozen different choices for most of the other major powers. Mm-hmm. You have got no choice. There are no 28 mil plastic Italians. Yeah. None at all. Um, and so I really hope there are some coming out. I am taking these leaked pictures with a slight pinch of salt at the moment in that I cannot remember ever having seen previously a leak of a warlord like greens like in the process of being sculpted mm-hmm. and i'm also unsure if having like what would be such a major kit coming out would be sculpted in green stuff first and then digitalized and converted like broken down to how it works out on the sprue yeah. and not digitally sculpted first like it could be that these are the mock-ups that will then be digitally sculpted yeah like a concept of proof of concept let's try making parts and see how they fit together before we then because you don't you don't make greens for plastics you you cut a mold into metal don't you you don't cast it in the same way as you cast a metal model um, That's what that was my thought. I, I know some companies do in that they sculpt them up first in green and then basically take a saw to them and chop them up and work out how they go on the sprue. Mm-hmm. But I think that is I'm not an expert on this. I think yeah. I think that is a way of doing I think that's how the Perrys do some of their stuff. But that is more for things like some of their cavalry and the like you know if you're a 1815 hussar you're in one pose with you know your arm goes here so you can cut the arm off and put it on a sprue that's the thing if you're making a multi-part kit with half a dozen different heads that have to Mm -hmm. fit on half a dozen different torsos i would imagine that is a completely different scenario and i i know like my only real sort of knowledge and experience of this is how War Games Atlantic talk about with their stuff, because mm-hmm. they they design their sprues from the get go and go. All right, this is what we want to include on the sprue, and they go right. We wanted to have fifteen gas masks, fifteen pistols, fifteen rifles, and fifteen shovels. Mm-hmm. We've only got room for four of those five. Which one don't you want fifteen of? And yeah. that sort of thing. And then like, they, they tweak and go, oh, we realised if we reposition this arm on the sprue, we can get the extra shovels on. Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, I'm sort of, 
I really hope it is plastic Italians coming from Warlord. I, I, I am sure plastic Italians will be coming from Warlord at some point. Yeah. I'm just not sure if these models that we've seen mean we're going to be getting them in the autumn when we get the Italy book. Um, we might well do, but I, I wouldn't be surprised. But also, I wouldn't be surprised if these are like a proof of concept thing. These models could possibly already be like from a year ago rather than last week. Yeah, we have no idea where they come from. And if the project went ahead, you know, they might have did, made these and gone, this isn't going to work. We don't think it's going to be, we want to carry on with it. You know, we have no yeah, idea. I, I do have to say on like a, a a model basis, the the greens themselves look like they would be fantastic metal models. Uh-huh. They they look like they would be a nightmare as plastics because they look like how do you do arm swaps and weapon swaps with those sorts of things? They look almost like the older generation of the Warlord kits where arms A go on torso A. Yeah, the old American models. Yeah, you had to have the right arm Oh, the right arm and the left arm. The correct arms together, you couldn't use different arms. You had to make sure if you trimmed them off the screw and then tried to assemble them, you were in big trouble. Yeah. Because you had to make sure you got the right pairs together. Whereas the modern kits, the slightly more bulky ones, mm-hmm. are almost the equal of a GW kit. You know, you just put all the bits in a bag, pull out an arm, pull out a head, pull out a body, away you go. Um mm-hmm. So we will sort of see, but also if we if we are wishlisting for plastic Italians, I am also going to plant my flag and please say, could we have a new uh, version of uh, Italy and the Axis Powers rulebook? Because in its entire life, Bolt Actions only brought out redone one army book, which was the second edition German army book. Um, I think the Italian army book. Would really do with one, uh, not not only because the Italian rules are so bad, but also uh, like the Italian rules in the Western Desert book go quite a long way to rectifying the Italians, mm-hmm. and the Hungarian rules in Campaign Budapest also really do a lot of work for the Hungarians, and I think as more events don't allow campaign books bringing out a revised Italy and the Axis powers just with those two armies would really bring <clears throat> those two armies into like a more level playing field with everyone else. Yeah. I think uh, so. Um, I do wonder if they'll wait till there's going to be a, a third edition before they redo the army books again. Because it, it was where they brought out the second edition of um, the rules they read the Germans then, didn't they? Um, yeah, that's that's the only one they did because they brought in things like Tiger Fear, and so they had to redo the points. They brought in Tiger Fear, um, and the Hitler's. But I think they changed like Hitler's buzzsaw. Like the Germans, they sort of basically rewrote. Hi, it's Tom and Andy here, and we have a request. Guys, if you can please, please, please go and give us a five-star review on iTunes. 
really going to help us get out of there, help us get recognized of other people. I hope you find in the group um, helps support you in your hobby. And we really want to help other people get that support too. And the best way to do that is a five-star review. Why five-star? Because apparently iTunes considers anything less than five-star, four-star or lower, a negative review. Who would have thought? I would be happy with four, but we need to get five-star reviews for iTunes. So please, if you can go on uh, and give us a five-star review, that'd be great. And something else you could do is come and join us on the Facebook group. That's the really the best way for us to communicate with you, the hobby support group out there. See your work, comment, help, and most importantly, support you grow and develop in your hobby. Thanks, guys. Happy hobbying. Two more bits of game news. It's a miniatures game uh, sort of being launched by Black Sight Games called Luna. Ooh, which what's that? It's uh, sort of like astronauts versus cosmonauts on the moon skirmish game. You sort of got, you know, five astronauts are on the moon and they're in a dust up with a bunch of cosmonauts. Um, and so I've got this on the moon. It's like rock hammer versus stick. Um, there are some ranged weapons, but it's mostly. Uh, melee weapons and the models look really quite nice because oh yeah who wouldn't like some sort of 28 mil scale cosmonauts for i mean that sounds amazing i mean you had me a cosmonauts yeah you play on like a two by two table which is like the moon surface um i think it's only sort of just being it's not available yet it's just sort of being kind of not so much teased just sort of trailered but it's it's it does look really quite nice as they go i could possibly think about picking up in the future if it's not too expensive because yeah you know astronauts versus cosmonauts it's, it's pretty much sold me for the win sounds yeah. good uh then another miniature this like a miniature board game that sort of caught my eye is uh that's at all the battle board game of Viking Legends. Ooh. Now, this is on Kickstarter at the moment, and it's you have 30 models aside, and you have things like Viking warriors, a wizard, a dragon, all this sort of thing. And what really appealed to me about this one is that it's one of those games that brought me back to my childhood in that uh-huh. it's played on a big old hex map, which you know, you're going to have to put on the floor because you won't have a table big enough to put it on if you're an adult. A load of rule sheets which you write things on and off and cards that you draw. Nice. And it, it's also got that sort of like 80s style artwork for a board game. Like, I don't know if anybody played the Lord of the Rings game back in the day it's it it reminds me very much of that i know one summer as a kid me and my friend played it quite a lot and i think we basically got out of the shire in an entire summer holiday so it's you know it's it's i'm quite drawn to it however the models themselves need lead quite a lot to 
be desired. They are they're toys. Yeah. Um, don't think I'm being disingenuous when say like from the pictures that are available, they're about as detailed as plastic army men that you would buy in the pound shop. Oh dear. Um, but what you can do is for ten dollars, so sort of like eight quid, you can buy a print and play version of the game, which gives hmm. you the full rule book, all the spell cards, the full size mat, uh, the battle damage sheets. You know, you get everything that you need to play to play the game. You just have to supply two armies of thirty Vikings each, and like the armies are, you know. Eight cavalry aside, a dragon aside, a couple of heroes, eight archers, ten spearmen, you know, a box of random Vikings and a box of Viking cavalry in any scale is going to sort you out to play this. Yeah. So I think I'm probably going to pick up the the print and play version. um, Oh, yeah. And... Yeah, I might play it in ten mil or something crazy and, and see what it's like. As just a, it, it might be terrible. It might just be like a cool homage to being a kid and playing games and you grow. I remember why these kind of games fell out of fashion. Um, but that's that. And then yeah. moving on to my final bit of uh, hobby news today is another board game actually that's on Kickstarter, and that is War Room. Oh, what's that? It's by the people. It's by Larry Harris, which is who was behind the Allied and Axis games. Oh, yeah. And it is a, a sort of like a grand strategy war game, um, which use two to six players and you play as you know Germans, Italians, British. Chinese, Japanese, the Americans, or the Soviet Union. Um, so two to six players. You play World War Two on a global scale on a big round board, um, and you start in 1941, and you sort can play it in an hour in quick player mode, in two hours in normal sort of standard mode. So if I find sort of like really appealing in that regard because. Some of these grand strategy games, you know, they take a weekend to play. Um, oh, yeah, at least. And this is the second edition, and the first edition is like the second edition is just slightly streamlined, whereas like the first edition, it's like really, really highly regarded as one of the best, um, so like modern, uh, so like strategy war games, not mm-hmm. just a World War Two war game. Um, and I really like it, and I would definitely be picking it up if it wasn't for the price. Um, because like board, good board games are never cheap. Um, no, but it's a hundred pounds, and then another forty pounds shipping. Yeah, it's expensive. So you're looking like a hundred and forty pounds for a board game that I might get to play once or twice a year and mm-hmm. that's it's just a bit too rich for my money yeah um like 
I've got several board games which I've paid, you know, in the fifty to seventy pound mark for, and have played once or twice, and feel bad about that. I don't want to really be paying double for that, and then, you know, feeling the same. So, if you play a lot of board games, or you you have a group where you play a lot of board games, definitely check it out. It's you know, yeah, well reviewed. It's seemingly an amazing game, and you know, having been able to get through a six player game in a couple of hours. It's an amazing achievement, and once it's off of Kickstarter, it will be a lot more expensive. Like at the moment, it's one hundred and thirty-seven dollars on Kickstarter. Its normal price is going to be two hundred. Yeah. If any of our listeners uh, who knows me buys a copy, please invite me for a game. <laughs> buy you a lemonade. Um, you have, have to travel the world, Tom, to go meet them. Oh, uh, I think it's. I really like board games but i just never really seem to have the time to play them and yeah i know like it's impossible this year because of the uh like especially in britain with uh the rise of what's being called the staycation because of travel restrictions and everything like that everybody's taking the holidays within the uk so yeah. uh you might pre- where previously you could have got a hotel room for somewhere for 30 pounds a night it's now 130. Um, yeah. But I really like the idea of a group of friends going for a weekend away somewhere, almost as if we were attending a tournament. Instead of attending a tournament, we just go and play board games for a weekend. <laughs> That's a good idea, to be honest. Because um, it, would, it would then give the chance to think, you know, how many people have finished a game of Twilight Imperium or something like Allied and Axis or any of the, the big board games that just need a table and you just need you know, maybe six hours to play it. Mm-hmm. Just, I think, I really like that idea of you know, a bunch of us going away and then we don't have to be doing the, you know, low-level uh, sort of aerobics all day that is playing three or four games of a war game. Yeah. You know, there's a whole conversation to be had about, you know, fitting them in, about playing board games and fitting them into your, into like the weekend, getting people together, it's, you have to plan ahead and, you know, you, you, I I know I buy games and I want to play them and then my cupboard and I haven't ever played them yet. (laughs) You know, being realistic again, it's about realism, isn't it? About how, you know, how are you going to get to play these games? Is it worth spending a hundred pounds on a game if you only play it once? Only, you know, the answer. Um, But yeah, just trying to get a way to play more board games is, is, is great. Yeah, I think board games are, I think, a, an interesting topic for us to maybe talk about more in the future because I've noticed, especially in recent years, the diff- where the difference between like a board game and a miniatures game has sort of become so blurred and so. You know, I've got a couple of board games. I've got one board game that I'm waiting to turn up for. I think it should be here early next year, which is coming with more models than most armies have painted. Yeah. Um, and you think, well, this is a board game that's got 200 models with it. Mm-hmm. This is, is this now just really like a tabletop game that happens to just be played on a board? Um, compared to other games, you know, other board games such as you know, Commanding Colours, which is a war game played in a board with chits. 
I think board games are also, in some ways, like maybe psychologically more accessible as well. People grew up playing Monopoly and Cluedo and so on. And if you can say, oh, it's like a bit like a board, it's a board game, a few extra things that can then get more people into the hobby, like a gateway as well. Yeah. People, I think, are more inclined to experiment with a board game than they are with go and buy a hundred miniatures and paint them. I think, I think there's that huge, as we said also, that, is the other thing I just sort of thought when you said that is with a board game, everything's in the box, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's not like when you're playing a board game, it's not like you're breaking out the neoprene mat and then the box of terrain and then yeah. the rule books off the shelf and then the miniatures out the cupboard. Yeah. Like with a, a board game, everything's in the box. Yeah. You know, you buy it and it's a one time purchase and it might be a hundred pounds for the board game. But if there's five or six of you playing it, you know, if there's five of you playing it and it's cost you £100, it's costing you £20 a player. Yeah. Whereas, you know, there aren't that many tabletop games you can play for 20 quid a player. Yeah. If you include everything in there. Um, I think the difference is with board games is because they are a, a more, you know, even more than a normal war game required multiple opponents to play you can have a group of you and go right we don't need four copies of this game because we can only play one copy at once Mm -hmm. who wants to pick up this core game that we all might want to play um but then again i think that requires like a a group of friends who can play sort of board games with regularly whereas like my board game playing buddies like you know one lives in newcastle one lives in leicester so, you know, the time we actually play board games is basically never nowadays. Yeah. So, tangent on board games. That's fine. <laughs> I, I mean, it, I think it's, it's lots of exciting stuff happening out there. And um, I'm looking forward to um, classic Italians. I think it's be a, a game changer, excuse the pun, uh, a game changer when those are available. I think it's, it just amazes me still to this day. It just amazes me we still don't have plastic Italians. Um, so that'd be great. I think so. And I think it, it is possible that War Games Atlantic being on the scene are making other companies take note and go, actually, we can't take three or four years, you know, between kits, or we can't just leave these huge gaps in our range yeah. because other companies are going to come and take them. And I think, especially something like Plastic Italians. People have been waiting for them for so long. Whichever kit hits the ground first is going to have, I would imagine, will sell quite well. Yeah. Because, yeah. Like, yes, in bolt action, Italians aren't brilliant, but there are more World War II games than just bolt action. Yeah. And I think it's quite possible a lot, of, especially the more established players, have been holding off and having an Italian army. Until they can get plastic ones, because I I've got a like my Italian army is all metals, yeah, and they weren't cheap, but you know, and like I I can't expand them, and I couldn't think of doing a second army with them, all in metal. As soon as these plastics coming out, I'll buy a couple of boxes. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, it wouldn't surprise me if because the bolt action rules are so bad. People haven't been buying the Italian models. They've looked and gone, well, 
We're not selling many Italians, so there's no demand for them. It's like, like got the wrong well, way around. You yeah, know? well, I think in a way, the, the bolt action rules, which favour small elite armies of specialist troops, have favoured people buying the metal kits, the metal models. Because if you're using like five or seven man units, it's not so expensive buying metals. Yeah. Because you go, right, those two boxes or those 20 boxes, those two boxes or 20 dudes actually really give me three squads as long as I pull in a commander from somewhere else. Um, that becomes much more affordable. And I think it's all in a way then becomes like a, as you just said, like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Or yeah. We don't make Italians because nobody buys the box of generic Italian troops. And it's like, no, nobody buys them because you can't play with them really. Yeah. They, they want to, they want to have an Italian army. I, I mean, I, I could definitely see if they, I could definitely see me, you know, doing some um, Italians for the Northern desert to go with my, my Germans, you know, Absolutely. Yeah, well, I, I think it's... Um, I'll get off my high horse, but I think it's... borderline offensive how the Italians are treated. I think in, in, in several World War II games. Yeah. Um, so we'll leave that one there. That bombshell. <laughs> on, on that bombshell. <laughs> Maybe we should move on. But yeah, I mean... It just seems madness to me that such an, you know, a big part of World War Two. that, yeah. So, let's move on to listener questions. Hi listeners, I just want to apologise for the background noise in the following two segments. Due to scheduling issues we had to record during the day, and unfortunately there's a lot of building work going on literally outside the windows of my flat at the moment, so apologies for the background noise again, and hopefully it won't happen in future episodes. Thank you, and enjoy the following two segments. Listener questions. Hey, Tom, we've got a lovely um, question, listener question for you this time. Um, Neil pops it up on our Facebook group. I'm not sure if it was, if it was a um, rhetorical question, but I thought it was worth discussing anyway. But basically, he said he spends hours sitting and sorting through all his projects, um, and he loves painting. But he needed to to knuckle down and and build and paint his armies, and he asked, "Where do I start?" And I know because I know Neil very well and his his magical loft of holding, loft of keeping. He's a lot of models and a lot of stuff up there. And where where do you begin to sort a project? Now I I gave an answer on Facebook, but I would love to hear what your thoughts are, Tom. Well, I would say. If you've got multiple projects and also I'm good friends with Neil and now he's the metric I hold my collection against thinking I don't feel too bad, I don't have a loft. Um, I think it's important to be realistic with yourself and say what can I paint in a fixed period of time? And that can be, what am I going to paint in a year? What am I, can I paint in six months? And I would say, now we're in the middle of June. I would think a, a good thing, the way I would approach it, would be to say, right, it's the middle of June. 
what can I paint this year? And I would then look at how quickly I paint, what can I paint, um, you know, that sort of thing. And I would say, right, I can paint roughly an army sized uh, project a month. So go, right, so I'm going to pick out six projects to try and get painted in the rest of this year. And I would then look at the various projects that I've got and I would try and pick six which are different enough from each other so I have a break from, so I'm just not painting the same thing. I would pick projects which are, are different in size. So it's like, oh, if this one's 150 figures, I'd then try and pick something that was 20 or 30 figures, simply so if that 150 figures takes me six weeks, I can then do the 20 figures in a fortnight. And I would also pick things which have, are going to be a different challenge to paint. So, you know, if I'm doing, if I'm doing late war German camo for one project, the next thing I'm going to do is probably something like Greek hoplites or something, you know, just a couple of colours, something that, that breaks it up. Because I think it, it would be difficult, I think, to sort of maintain momentum and motivation if you're doing difficult project after difficult project after difficult project. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and also, I would I would have a look. If, if I've got dozens of projects, or maybe even more projects than that, I would have a look at which are the ones that I'm actually going to play with soonest, or which do I feel most enthused about, and sort of try and select them, and sort of like trying to cut down the whole collection into something more manageable and work on them. And then the thing that I have done recently, or in the last year or so, is by having like a number of projects on the go at the same time in various forms. Because how I've always approached things before is I would build a project, paint a project, finish it, move on to building the next project, painting it, finishing it, and just sort of almost having like a, a, a project production line. But for various reasons, I've, I've sort of had to change that up. And what I now have yep. some things half built, some things built, um, some things painted, some things nearly painted. But I have each one in their box. And I'm able to be a bit more of a hobby butterfly while still working towards my actual goals by picking them up. And a, a good example of that would be like for uh, a, you know, several weeks ago, I was working on the six mil napoleonic british then had to sort of put those to one side while i painted up the bolt action japanese but when they was painting the bolt action japanese while i was painting the early war japanese army that i want for this event we're going to i thought at the same time i will paint the late war infantry because they're the same color scheme it's just I don't want to paint half of the infantry now, half the infantry later. So I've like got the infantry for two armies painted, but the late war army has various tanks and vehicles in, which I haven't painted yet. And so um, like my paint, like my projects aren't complete at the moment. Are I've got 90% of the six mil British army done. I've got 100% of the early war Japanese done. I've got about 
well, I've got all the infantry and the team weapons for the late war Japanese done and none of the vehicles. And that's, and so like in the last two months, I haven't actually finished a project, but this coming week, I'm going to actually finish three projects because I'll have finished the infantry once they're varnished. As soon as I've done the vehicles, I'll have finished the late war Japanese army and a couple of days painting the British, I'll have finished that six mil British army. So that's like three projects that will be like ticked off my overall list and finished, but also like out of the to-do pile and the done pile all at the same time. And by working on them almost at the same time, it's I found it really helpful in like working and maintaining momentum and going, right, I need to do this, I need to do this, or want to do this, I want to do that while not really getting lost in going, oh, I'm going to paint this character, I'm going to paint this tank, but then I'm going to yeah. do like this and this, and just by narrowing down what I'm working on, but still sort of like, all oh, it all gets done in the end. And I think when you, when you have multiple years worth of painting, I think that's where it becomes more difficult. Like, no disrespect to Neil, but I would imagine he's probably got a decade's worth of painting um, in his loft. With, and I think it, it, if you don't cut that down into more manageable chunks, yeah, I think you're just always going to be slightly lost in what you work on and not having any real structure to it because there's simply so much and more things coming in things just get lost and you go well i might have spent two weeks painting half of this army but i haven't touched the rest of it for two or three years i really can't be i've forgotten how i painted the first half i'm not really that bothered about going back to the other half Um, i think that's uh that's how i would approach it and i think it's i think it also like links in quite closely to like something that we talk about an awful lot which is like how like hobby expectations and like hobby purchasing and that sort of stuff and like how uh, like we've obviously talked you know at great length about how we stop buying as much stuff and you know how we manage the urge to buy things but i think how you actually tackle a massive backlog of projects is something that we haven't really talked about yet and, and might be a, a good segment for the future because I, like, I know you are yeah. one of the very few people if not like the only person i know who actually went right i'm not buying any models i'm painting all my models yeah. and you actually you, you did achieve that i did uh, i wish i'm <laughs> not in the same situation anymore but at one point i was yeah i know that's a way that you've uh, you approached it and i know um I think it was Sasha last year, didn't buy any models. He, he didn't get all his models painted, which said, all right, I'm taking a year off of buying models. And I think that is one way of approaching, like, how do I stop this problem? If, if you view it as a problem or a, a source of opportunity, how do you prevent it exacerbating any more? But I think... Like I'm in was in the position at the beginning of this year when I, I, I drew up my own list and I realized I've probably got thirty armies to paint. 
how do you yep. go how do you go about painting 30 armies um and i had to i drew up my oval list i didn't put everything on there i put what is a decent mix of what i would like to get painted what is complicated what is easy and what am i actually going to want to game with this year mm -hmm. and i think and also there, there were some things when i did my list that i realized I don't want to really, I'm not going to bother painting that this year because I don't want to play with it. Yeah. And then that stuff has been sold. And you know, I sold a load of stuff over the weekend as well. And it was like, right, I don't really want all these 40K vehicles that are unpainted. They can go. So they've gone. And I think probably it's, if, if you're really struggling for motivation or thinking or some sort of direction, I think it's probably quite important to have an honest conversation with yourself about what you want to play. Like, what do you want to play? And what are, but also, what are you realistically going to play with other people? And again, with, with reference to, so this is slightly e an easier question, knowing Neil. And I, I know Neil is one of those fantastic gamers who will play anything and will play everything. So you, you could go, we're going to play 16th century pi pirates. We're going to play Gates and Tories. We're going to play Gangs of Rome. We're going to play Ancient Druids. Anything, he will play it and happily play it and it'll be an enjoyable game. But I think, I don't know, do you think you sometimes have to be a little bit more narrow-minded in what you're going to play in the short and medium term to actually get stuff done. Oh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, if you've got 30 armies, you're going to get nowhere trying to paint all 30 in one go. It's gonna, I mean, you, you'll be making progress on each one, but the, the small dip that in the ocean that that is will just, it will feel like you're going nowhere. I mean, that's part of what he said was he likes painting and jumping around painting different things that appeal to him, but you need to have a plan. You need to have a structure of how you're going to tackle them. And I think narrowing that down to to what do you need to do now what are you going to be playing now what models do i need painted now is that's a really good way to give you a bit more focus on um on tackling those projects yeah and like i would say if if you like jumping around and working on various things at the same time i would just personally put some limits in how far i jump around yeah and go right this is going to be some 40k stuff. This is some Age of Sigmar stuff. This is some historical stuff. This is something different. You know, they all paint very differently. You're using different techniques. You're using different colours. That kind of a thing. And and just and working out roughly like how much you paint. If if you paint ten figures a week, and just put a box together of 40 figures and go right this month. I'm going to paint these diff these 40 figures. This is my, I would like to try and paint these 40 figures. And they can be from like various different things that you're working on and finishing. Because I think it's, a, uh, Henry talks about it, well, we were talking to him on the Colour Paint episode. I think it's really important to finish projects within a specific, like a relatively short time frame. Because I think if they go on and on for years and years, 
I think you sort of lose all enthusiasm. Yeah, yeah. Henry said that the guest to a point where he's like, well, I haven't finished it in this time space. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. Because it's my focus and my excitement is entirely somewhere else. Yeah. And I think, you know, if, if you've got 30 armies, I, you know, it's obviously like you are a hobby, but you like armies and you like buying models. I think it's, it's a basic you know, assumption for when you've got 30 armies. And if you're trying to paint them all in one go, if you ever do finish all of those, th- you're never going to finish those 30 because that 30 is going to have grown to 50 by the time you've got half of those 30 done. Um, I think. Yeah. And yeah, so, like, for sure. I mean, I mean, the, the advice I gave to Neil, and I said, for me, with my projects, this is what I have currently. I basically, I basically, I have three boxes. I have my projects that I'm working on now, so my overlist, what that I'm working on for this year. I have a box for 2022, so the projects for next year. I have a, and I have a bits box, which is the bits of leftover sprue and, and for conversions and so on. And I said to Neil, I think what he, he might benefit from is doing a sort of get, getting, getting three boxes and going, okay, what do I want to work on now? What am I, and just getting one box, and it could be lots of random stuff, of like flittering around and doing different things, but then get several, lots of, some historicals, some science fiction, some, maybe some horror, whatever it is, pop that in that box, and that is what you are going to work on for the rest of the year. That is it. Ignore the rest of your collection. You've selected what the things that you really want to paint, or things that you need for your armies, for the games you're going to be playing, or tournaments you're going to go to. Put that box down. That's just one thing. Second thing is like, what do you want to keep for the future? And the third one is maybe even have a sort out and say, I should sell these, get rid of these, because these are not things uh, I bought them five years ago. I've not looked at it for five years. Um, do I really still, <laughs> sorry, boy, George here. Do you really want to paint me? Um, do you still really want these? And, you know, maybe he wants to keep them all. And that's fine. That's fine. It's, it's, it's his collection. He knows what he wants. But, you know, the, there might be an opportunity to free some money up to get something that he really wants right now. Or even just put it in the bank account and spend it on some some sun cream and go to the park, you know. I completely agree with all of that. I have, uh, rather than the, the three box system, I have, I like all of my projects in their own box yeah or, or in their own tray and now i've started using the mdf dividers in the really useful boxes i can you know using a lot less really useful boxes but i like having each project in a box with a label on the box and so wherever i'm working on that right i'm working on some late war hungarians i just draw up pull out that box there's all the hungarians in there mm-hmm. I paint them put them away no, bring think, out the British. The British are there. I think yeah. that is what I find really useful. And also, I mean, my all my projects now I've got left to do are so small. They are just in their own little bag. Yeah, in in the box. So I kind of I've got. They are divided. They're not all just loose together. They are divided in that box into bags no, like, because I can't imagine having them running around wild. No, well, like most of the rest of my oval list for this year actually fits in a single nine litre box yeah because um, with moving I, I condensed it down you know snip things off sprues and stuff 
but I, I think even if you are lucky enough to be in a position where you don't need to sell things to free up cash for more models, yep. or, or, or you need to sell things because you need the physical space to put more stuff in, I think if you have got hobby stuff lying around that no longer like enthuses you or, or it's a bit of a millstone, just sell it, swap it, or even give it, if you don't need the cash from it, give it to people who will appreciate oh, yeah. it. Yeah, I've given away models because I'm like, it's just, I'm just appreciative of just having the space in my cupboard. That's a release of stress of like, I need to paint this. I don't really want to paint this. Just giving it away, it's like, it's done. And you made someone happy. That's yeah. nice. It's like, I've got rid of several boxes of stuff recently. And I'm not intending to be like, all right, I'm getting rid of, I've sold the X, Y, and Z. So I can now buy that 148 scale two meter long U-boat or something that I mm -hmm. um, I'm not doing that because I actually want the space. I don't want to feel, uh, and my wife especially, doesn't want the flat, every nook and cranny filled with boxes of models and hobby stuff. Um, <laughs> no. They, they they very rarely do do appreciate you know some orcs in the bathroom or you know some tyrannids running around the the kitchen. And I think also I think if if you've got like a massive hobby collection, mm -hmm. I think you can be more selective in what you keep. Like if you go right, I want to play a pirate game, and you've got several ranges of pirates. So you've backed like several pirate kickstarters. Like, I wouldn't mm -hmm. be at all averse to looking at the like two or three ranges of like pirates that I've got and go, which of these are the best models? Yeah. And keeping those and playing, even if I wanted to then play the other games, playing the other games with that one set of pirate models. Yeah. Like, I, I, I do not see myself going forward having like any double ups like I, when i've got 28 mil romans i'm not going to then do some 28 mil romans that are just different sculpts or like slightly different ones yeah i mean are, if you, if you, just, if you were just playing romans and nothing else oh yeah definitely you might go but you're I, not I'm, no you yeah. like if i was playing i said oh well i want some like cesarean romans and then i want some you know or the space Republican. Romans. Yeah. um but I'm not. And I suppose it's a similar thing with pirates. If you oh, I want golden age of piracy pirates, but I would then like some like late 18th century pirates. Mm -hmm. Like unless you're really into pirates, I would just say a decent collection of pirate minis will sort you out for the occasional pirate game that you're going to play. It's if it's a period that you're really interested and in, really super excited to game. I think you probably want to then like make a pact with an opponent that you're playing that you're going to have like a you're going to build opposing armies mm -hmm. or you build both armies. Because yeah. you know, I'm really I really really like Sun Knights. I want to play the Sun Knights wars, but then like everybody that you play has got I don't know Parthians or Scythians or something. Mm -hmm. It's like can I please just play some Republican Romans? <laughs> <laughs> But hopefully that has answered 
Neil's question. Yeah, I think you just need a bit of a bit of discipline, a bit of focus. Just you know, sort out a small selection from your big collection, and just focus on that. Yeah, um, self-imposed limitations. Hi, Andy here. Thanks for listening to Hobby Support Group. If you're listening on Spotify, can I ask you just to click on and subscribe to us? That'll be a really big help. Just just get your get your phone, whatever it is, and, and go on and, and just subscribe. And then you'll never miss me or Tom ever again. And thanks again for listening to Hobby Support Group. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Games we played. Hey, Tom. Hey, Andy. Oh, we, we, um, that was a magical experience. A magical experience was had by all. We actually managed to meet face to face and play a game of bolt action. It was oh. very curious and very enjoyable. It was fantastic. The first time rolled dice in person since February 2020. Yeah. And the, the first game of bolt action, I think, since probably December 2019. Yes. Uh, yeah, it was. I got to go. We were at the, um, the Hackney Area Tabletop Enthusiast, the Hate Club. And um, I'm very pleased to say I purchased some drinks off um, Dame Mags herself, the barkeep at the club. Bethany Green working with the club. She served us some delicious fruity ciders. Um, and we got to get stuck in and, and practice for this tournament we have coming up. Yep, yeah, and it was it was great to see uh, other friends socially distanced. It was a fun evening. I also sort of brought up a, a few things that I'd completely forgotten, hobby wise, which mm. I think is, is important to be in mind. I got there before you and set up the table, and basically forgot how terrain works in a war game. Yeah, yeah. It was all, um, well, not all, 90% of it was um, line of sight blocking terrain. And you do want a little bit of area terrain in bolt action. It is an infantry game. Now, for tank wars, I think it'd be, you know, nipping around buildings and so on. It might play a bit better, but it was a bit, um, it was all or nothing, wasn't it, Tom? It was all line of sight blocking terrain, It was, but also the line of sight it blocked wasn't actually very good because we still ended up shooting at each other from one corner of the table to the other and across the table and all sorts. And it was like, oh, if you stand here, you can see everywhere. If you stand here, you can see everywhere. Oh, if you're up here, you can see everywhere. <laughs> well, I mean, that does happen in war. You know, there are places in the middle of the desert, but even then, you know, it's, it's good. For, it's good for game to have a few different things. But, you know, we, we, it didn't stop us having fun. It no, wasn't that, that was, bad. It, 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 was... It, it was a fun game. It was an enjoyable game. And it actually, it was, by the end, a surprisingly close game, which mm-hmm. at one point looked like it was going incredibly one-sided. Yes, um, it did. It was, it was going very well for me. Um, so we, for those who were listening last week, last, I would say last week, it was two weeks ago, uh, listening two weeks ago, you all know, in the last episode, that um, Tom and I uh, built some lists on the show, and then we went and played with them. And 
Um, so certainly some, some weaknesses and some things were learnt um, playing the game. Um, and my army list was certainly um, better at the range early on in the game. So I had lots of light machine guns and medium machine guns. And you know I, I advanced off and was shooting at Tom. And that certainly paid off for me, didn't it, Tom? Yes, I think we had, going into the game, I knew it would be quite difficult for me because your army was almost a perfect counter to my army. Like, I have several large units of veteran infantry, and you had multiple units of uh, of intermediate-ranged fire to put pins on them and kill them. And then when yeah. we rolled up the mission, we rolled the mission where nothing starts on the table, everything has to come on from the board edge. Mm-hmm. And so it also meant that your extra mobility and range really put me on the back foot. And so yeah. for the first two turns, my entire army had to take two turns of your, well, one full turn of shooting and one a round of like probably 10 machine guns yeah. into it before it was able to get a shot off. Yeah. Uh, and it did do quite a bit of damage to my army. In the I mean, those, your guys were vets, so I was hitting you a lot, putting pins on you, but um, I wasn't taking many guys off. I wasn't rolling many fives and sixes, but, you know, if I get one, one guy a turn, that's still pretty good. You you were you were you were sort of getting like one or, or two guys a turn off of most units, and but also the number of pens like you, you managed to get some pens on my howitzer. You managed to get enough pens on my howitzer that it then foobarred, and that then <laughs> yeah he foobarred and shot your officer, which I think yeah. was an assassination plot from a internal uh, rivalry. Yes, yeah, so like a foobard then foobard the foobard roll and evaporated my own officer with my medium howitzer. Um, but then as the game got on, went on, and I actually sort of managed to close the distance and, and things, you, know, you started coming in rifle range and knee more. Yeah, and that's I, think, I think I got overconfident, Tom, was what it was. I, I, I was doing so well. At the intermediate range, I was like, "Yeah, let's ride up, let's jump out, let's get stuck in." I've got, I have one SMG in this in this squad. I should really get them up close and personal, and that was a terrible idea. I think also that I would say it was also that the dice gods, in a way, were quite fickle for us both because, like, we both had thirteen dice, mm-hmm. and yet, like, setting up, I had the first six dice setting up. Yeah, um, I think like turn four, which is, is quite often when you're playing bolt action, turn four is, is quite often in a way one of the key turn really because it's when mm-hmm. everything's in range. You know, your mortars and howitzers are probably if they haven't zeroed in, they're now on a three. So you've got a decent in turn four is when generally games are won or lost. I I think um, other players might disagree. Turn four, I think you had the first eight dice out of the bag. Yeah. 
Um, and by having that amount of dice, you were able to evaporate a nine man squad just by shooting it with four different squads, I think. And yeah. Just like one or two guys each turn, took them off. And you, you did just, you know, evaporate the whole squad a few guys at a time. And then when you've got that your tank was driving around and able to use just both its machine guns rather than its... It had a, um, was it a light or medium anti-tank gun, I can't remember. And I never fired that anti-tank gun once. No. Uh, the two the two medium machine guns are, were far better at just putting out damage against your, your large squads. Yeah, yeah. Twelve shots, hitting on threes, and then killing on fives. Do do quite a number of casualties. Yeah. Because um, that tank was holding that whole right flank by himself. Yeah, because I, I, I was trying to push near it with the suicide guy. Um, but it was, again, without the cover, without the line of sight, even though he's like a small guy, you were still hitting him on fives. I think I think the best cover I could get him was over like you're hitting him on a five. Mm-hmm. And... 12 shots, five followed by a five. You know, you, once he was in range, you got once he was like gearing up to charge, you got him quite easily. Um, yeah. And then, well, you, I mean, that meant that. I mean, if I'm taking the time to shoot that one guy, it does mean I'm not shooting another squad. Yeah, it, it does but mean. You force my hand in that sense. It does mean for that one turn, your 200 point unit, a 200 ish point unit. Uh, like dedicated all its fire to like a unit that's less than 30 points. Yeah. So like on a point by point basis, that is what worked. And like yeah. I, when it's like earlier on, just when I was saying like, you know, like you put four units in to delete one of my units, you're putting like, you know, 300 plus points into something that's 100 points. Yeah. And it's gone. But bolt action is a game where once you've taken, if you, once you're down a squad, it becomes much harder to then win. A, if you've got an ad, a numerical advantage in squads for objectives and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. it just makes winning the game so much easier because you can get the objectives and your opponent. And it can't. also makes it more likely a dice are going to come out of the bag. If it's one less of yours, it just makes it more likely mine are going to come out. Yeah, and having having dice advantage for when you need things to go correctly is just so important and like we mm-hmm. we ended up because of how the the lines of sight worked we ended up really in a a, a dual or how it says ended up being able to like draw line of sight on each other um mm-hmm. at one point and like i think this is a, a good example of like we always whenever we talk about bolt action i think we talk about how he is you know really king yeah, in bolt action, and yet I think throughout I had a heavy mortar, you had a medium mortar, and we yeah. both had a medium howitzer. And throughout the whole game, there was one medium howitzer hit. Uh, well, no, it was the heavy how it was the heavy mortar. So it was it was the, heavy, the, the, the we didn't even have a heavy howitzer. It was yeah. one one heavy mortar hit. Yeah, and it like yeah, it put a few pins on one transport. And killed a couple of guys. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah it was it was very interesting that those um artillery that did nothing no Just, yeah and yet in, an, in another game quite easily yeah. like if one of the if one one or two of them you know over a six turn game we should have rolled more than one six rolling four dice a turn yeah but we didn't and it's just it's why in a way i love bolt action so much because you can have plans you can have everything like that and if you don't get the dice rolls you don't get the dice rolls yeah it's, it's just things happen and you know by the end of like you had an amazing turn four where you really i thought i was on the verge of being tabled because that's when like i, I foobarred mm-hmm. annihilated my officer every one of my units has got loads of pins on and at that yeah. point I, I had so many pins on all my units, I had I couldn't shoot you at all. Yeah. I could only charge at you because like, I've got four pins on. If I just stand here and rally, next turn you'll by the time next turn comes round, they'll just have another four pins on them. So I ended up just charging forward each turn. Um, yeah. And luckily that paid off because yeah. by the end of the game it was like you got a winning draw didn't you yeah. you held one objective i held one but you were contesting it and the third yeah. one neither of us had and we did finish early because we just had, we ran out of time at the club i mean we were playing a bit maybe we were playing too slowly so we, we only played five turns didn't we just because of time restraints so I mean, that's, yeah. that's something to take into account when we go to this tournament is we're going to need to play faster well, we're that's what we're to- practicing we're going to need to play faster because we were. We, it did take us. It took us a long time to set up the actual, mm-hmm. like, our actual armies, but also you know, we haven't seen each other in person for over a year and a bit. So <laughs> yeah. there was, and we had like other people would come and like periodically like stand at the other end of the table. Like we were sat opposite each other over the four foot table, yeah. and then like over a six foot table and periodically someone would come and stand socially distanced to have a little chat with us. And so mm-hmm. we weren't, it wasn't like we've got two and a half hours. Here we yeah. are. Boom, 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 boom. And we were talking for, I, I, I know I was talking through my decisions. I was talking, Tom, this is what I'm thinking. It wasn't super, because we, you know, we both want to get better at playing and like, here's what I'm thinking of doing. What do you think? And you would say, are you crazy, Andy? Why would you do that? And I'd go, oh yeah, that's a good point. That's a stupid idea. You know, well, yeah, it was things like don't bother firing your light. It, you had the medium AT guns, like don't bother firing the medium AT gun at the unit because it's even if you hit, you've only got the small template. Yeah, use the coaxial machine gun instead. Um, <clears throat> you know, those six shots will do more damage likely than the one hit. Yeah, with the AT gun. absolutely. I did enjoy um, the sniper mortar battle. <laughs> the classic sniper. Who's going to hit who first? It, and surprisingly, it was the sniper. <laughs> yeah, he, he did sort of break the convention of actually hitting on the second go. Yeah, I was shocked. I've never seen that happen before. You know, the standard roll the three to hit, roll the three to wound, roll the two to wound. Yeah. Second turn, yeah, roll the three to hit, roll the four to wound. I was zeroing in. I had fired once down to a five. Thought, well, you know, this would get to like a three before I actually, you know, maybe hit you. 
<laughs> no. Oh, and uh, yeah, important lessons learned about empty transports as well. I was in quite. I, I think that would have made a big difference to the game as well. If I in that assault you had, where you then consolidated and end up being closer to two of my Hanamags. So I lost two. I lost a squad and two Hanamags. Yeah, and you know, losing three dice in one go. That is, it, it's the problem with transports. Yeah, bolt action as a game. Yeah, and an armed transport is an amazing unit. Yeah, but they require a lot of micromanagement. Yeah, um, especially if you're putting units, if especially if you're using them to transport units forward. Like yeah. how I have tended to use them when I played my British with a lot of brain carriers, is I I ended up using them more in my mind rather than as an actual transport as an armored pillbox yeah and then i write these aren't going to get in the person's face because if i you lose the unit they're gone and because yeah. it's if an enemy unit is closer to you than your own unit they're gone it doesn't ha even have to be well that nearest enemy unit is 18 inches away your nearest unit is 19 inches away it's yeah. still gone yeah um, exactly Whereas, like, because I, I was quite close with the other unit, but just that advance you got after beating that first one took out the squad and the vehicle that come in. And then by just going just between the vehicle and the other squad, you managed to get closer. And it wasn't that far, no. you know, but it could have been you know, 20, 20 to 21 or, you know, three to four is whoever's closest. Yeah. It's, uh, and especially when they've got a medium machine gun on them. So mm -hmm. you never need to really be more than 18 inches. You know, as long as you're within, if you're within 18 inches and you're stood still, you're hitting on a three anyway, unless anything's happened. Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, you're hitting on a four at long range. I would rather take the plus one to hit for long range and have them be categorically Alive. safe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, this is the lesson. I, I, I was full of hubris at this point. I was rushing forward and and that's my that's the big takeaway I took from this army is like uh don't get too close. Yeah, like uh, as I, I sort of said at the beginning of this segment, like our armies I think are sort of two quite extreme armies. Mm -hmm. In that yours is an awful like you dominate that thirty six to twenty four inch range band. Mm -hmm. Like that is where all your like equals like you have so many like every unit's got a light machine gun and then you've got all the transports with the medium machine guns yeah. and so you can really like that band is really where you really dominate and also having the howitzer the mortar and the tank you can you also have some longer range firepower as mm -hmm. well coupled with mobility Whereas, like, my army, I have the howitzer and the mortar, which give me some long-range firepower. Then everything else is really rifle range. Like, I, I did have a couple of LMGs, but you were able to put enough pins on those LMG squads that I was never actually able to fire them. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't actually think in the entire game, I don't think I fired, a, like, a, an actual rifle 
or LMG shot at you. I think the only thing I fired at you was one knee mortar. Yeah. Um, no, that's a lie. I would have fired the rifles at you when I fired the knee mortar. Yeah, I think that's that squad against the building, which doesn't yeah. really narrow it down very much, but I think you know which one I mean. Yeah, so I think like in, in five turns, I've shot one of having five, five turns with five units. I fired one one unit, had one round of shooting. Um, because all the rest of it, it, it was running forward to get you into charge range, which is where mm-hmm. I deleted your units. I think I deleted two or yeah, three that, of your units. Yeah, um, the, the, the Banzai rule really paid off for you. Yeah. Because, yeah, it just let you ignore those pins. Yeah, which is where I can see why people play the Bamboo Spearman and why they're horrible. Because... I had five units of veterans. I'm paying like you know 100 points a unit, and they just, they still kept coming even with all the pins. Yeah. I could have had like ten units of bamboo spearmen, and oh. they'd have kept coming. Yeah, man. Um, and with that fanatic rule, they just keep coming. Mm-hmm. Um, like you would have killed if they were the bamboo spearmen. You would have killed a lot more of them because you would be killing them on threes rather than fives. But, um, you know, this I, I was trying to play relatively historical. Yeah. And it's like, it's what's, you know, you don't have bamboo spearmen in the Sino-Japanese war. So yeah. they're not in there. It was veterans, mostly. Um, I am going to make a slight change to the uh, army for the next time I play. And I, mean, I am swapping out um, some of the knee mortars to just back with standard riflemen. Yeah. Because the, like, the knee mortar, that single shot with the knee mortar is like over, is as expensive as three riflemen. Yeah. And so I, I would rather have the extra three riflemen bodies in them, just so I like a few more bodies. And also I'm taking a medium machine gun squad mm-hmm. just so I have a, a little bit more an extra dice that can possibly shoot in theory um, and, and see how that goes. Like I, I fully intend, like we're, we're planning to play another two games before we go to this event on, because we're playing all the missions. Um, yeah. And like, I'm hoping that the mission we played last week was the one mission that I will really struggle with. Um, and I'm hoping the other two, I don't struggle with quite as much, but I am in, in, I am uh, fully intending it to be quite difficult for me to beat your army because it's just such a, a polarizing matchup. I think. Yeah. Not like having it and spitting my dummy out, going, "Oh, your army's better." I think. I think it's because I'm such a brilliant general and my tactical acumen is so great that it's going to be difficult for you. That's why I think. <laughs> well, you are a very nah. good player. Oh, thanks, Tom. And I, 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 I do get very lucky. My, I'm a lucky, lucky, lucky guy when it comes to dice rolls. I know I probably work out average across the whole game, but I do seem to get the sixes when I need them. Uh, I, I am. Uh, I don't know what you would call my foobar luck, but my my foobar luck is if I roll a foobar, I'm rolling a twelve um, every time. 
it was pretty funny. I don't think it affected you too much losing your HQ. I'll be honest, but it was just I could have done. It would have made the thing with the HQ when you've got loads of pins on. It's that like, oh, they've got three pins on compared to they've got two pins on. Yeah. And like, if you're a veteran and you go right, they've got two pins on them. I need an eight. It makes it slightly. It makes me more likely to go right. I'm going to roll it to see if they activate rather than yeah. rally. Yeah. But if like if they need a seven, you're going to rally. Yeah. Um, I think if you've got three pins or more, you should be thinking about rallying. Yeah, because also if you've got three pins on, you're also going to be hitting on sevens, and you just you yeah. don't really hit on sevens. Um, yeah. Whereas like if you've got two pins. You pass the order test, you're on one pin. You're hitting on fives or sixes. Yeah. And there, there is such a huge difference for hitting on a six than hitting on a seven. I think um, that's one of the, gr- the great things about the American army is you don't get that minus one for moving and fire. Yeah. Like which just, makes so many shots go from being a, a seven plus to a six. Yeah. Just for listeners who don't understand what we're talking about, with why is a seven so much more difficult than a six? In bolt action, it uses D6, but you have modifiers that like make that you, you you innately hit on a three, but then you have things like you've moved, long range, cover, all of these things. They add up, so you can go above six. And if you end up above six, it's what you call hitting on a seven. And to hit on a seven, when you roll to hit, you have to hit a you have to roll a six, followed by another six, and so. Statistically, hitting on sevens is very difficult. Like the only units that can really hit on sevens, even semi-reliably, are something that's putting out like twenty or more shots, and then you might get one or two hits if you're lucky. Yeah. Um, and even then, it's like, do we? Do we not? It's very unreliable. Um, so that's yeah. what we mean when we're talking about hitting on sevens. You know, you need a six followed by a six. Yeah, yeah, six times less likely to hit on a six than a six followed by a six, I think. Yeah. And My like, stats work out. And like, seems so like most units are putting out maybe 10 to 15, or 10 to 15 shots at the very most. You know, it's, it's not like you're rolling orcs, buckets of dice. Yeah. Um, if only. I don't know. How, how many, you know, this is my, like, Quad Maxim Gaz Platoon. <laughs> I think that's Stuart with all the LMGs on it. Oh, no, I think the, the Quad Gaz would, I think. Yeah, the Stuart with all the LMGs on is, is 16 bad. shots, isn't it? I think it's like four LMGs, isn't it? Yeah, but the Quad Maxim is like 20. Ooh. And it's about 60 points. It's, it's, not, it's very cheap. You get like several of them for the price of the Stuart. But then you would have no friends. And, uh, this is true. Yeah, this, this, this is why friends are important. This, this is why friends and social contracts are important. And it's like why I don't have 150 bamboo spearmen. Yeah. Just going out well, that's it. it it's the, it's the, um, the agreement you make with your opponent before you start the game. Like if, I, if you told me you were going to bring 150 bamboo spearmen, then I would be like, okay, then I am going to be having all pioneer squads with flamethrowers in and, you know, 
just trying to make the most horrible list they can in return. Yeah, I, I think I think it's really important. I think when you're playing somebody, and either even if it's an event or a friend, that you don't tailor your list specifically to beat them with the knowledge that what list that they've got. Mm-hmm. Like I think it, it like I think if somebody was like if you'd brought the tiger and I was playing British, I might go right. He's bringing a tiger. I'm going to bring a seventeen pounder instead of a peer. Um, yeah, that sort. Of, I think that is fine. But I think if you go right, like I knew you were bringing the uh, Hadamags. So like, right, how do I? What is my best option for taking loads of Hadamags? I know I'm going to take loads of the like the Japanese bunkers that you can buy from one of the books or something like that. Mm-hmm. I think that is a way to actually make you not only a bit of a jerk player, but also it will do you no favours at all when you go to events because you're going to rock up and like game one, you've got no idea who you're playing. Like you, yeah. some events allow you to pick your turn one opponent if you've got like a grudge against them yeah. or like, oh, I, I want to play this person. They might do that for turn one. But the vast majority of tournaments are, are Swiss pairing. So after turn two, after game, game two, if you won your game, you're playing whoever won their first game. Exactly. And like, if you are used to playing like tailored armies to beat your opponent, it, it's not going to work. Like, yes, tailored armies for specific scenarios, completely understandable and completely fine. If we're doing, you know, you bring Tiger 131 and I'm bringing some Eighth Army who are out to capture Tiger 131, that's, yeah. compl- that's a different thing rather than this is tournament practice or this is event practice. That's that's where I would draw the line. And like we've both said, we're not making wholesale changes to our armies. Like, mm-hmm. I, like I have, I don't think you're making any changes. No, I'm giving this. It's just you. Just I need to play with the army first. One game is not enough information on you know some things did well, some things did bad. Well, was that just one game? And then yeah. you know you just you just have to learn to play with what you have. Yeah, like I, I am. Like as I said, I've swapped out. The knee mortars in the grenadier squads, and so the grenadiers are just going to become normal veteran squads. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just swapping out two special weapons, um, and then I'm swapping out the regular suicide AT guy uh, for a flamethrower team because mm-hmm. I think a, a second, I think a flamethrower is a good counter. To armor, but it is also it's it's a much better infantry counter. And like, oh, here's a flamethrower hiding behind this wall. It, it makes it, people more reticent to come forward. Yeah, than, this is a suicide AT guy which can kill one of you. Yeah, because you know it's going to go for sure. Once it goes up, it's gone. Yeah. Whereas the, the flamethrower might hang around, and uh, flamethrowers make your opponent think. Um, I'm a big believer in if your opponent is thinking. You're winning. Yeah. And if they're they're going like having them think about what choices they're making, then you're winning the game. Yeah. And by having both, now this is a little bit gamey. If I take the engineering squad and the flamethrower squad, but it does allow me to outflank one on both sides of the table. And it's then, right, it doesn't matter which side of the table 
my opponent sets their stuff up on, I can get them, in theory, with a flamethrower at some point. Mm-hmm. So it, it mm-hmm. hopefully makes them decide more to set up in the middle. Um, and mucking around with their setup makes things better for me. I, I'm sure. I, I also, I, I hope, I counter the gaminess of taking two flamethrowers by taking a medium machine gun. <laughs> for sure. I am. Um, like, don't hate me. I'm taking a medium machine gun. I, I didn't put my spotters in my Hannah mags. That's very gamey. Because you, your your spotters for your howitzer and your mortar can go in the Hannah mags. And then, although they can't fire the gun, which is fine because the driver fires the gun, they also don't, they can't have any transport inside them so they don't just evaporate. Yeah. So that's one thing you can do. And I'm a bit like, mm, it does sound a little bit like you're just twisting the rules to make it a little bit in your favour, which is not maybe the intention of the as they are written. No, I think I, I, I would... If I get to the final on, on in the third game, then I probably would do that, just because, like, well, I might win this now. Yeah, but like... I should, like, you know, should make an effort to try and actually win it. But... Um... I don't yeah. think I'd be starting like that. No, and it's like, I would say, like, I would definitely, I think Hannah Mags are slightly different in that they can take two weapons, but the second weapon is only in the rear arc. That's right. So it's not like, if you have a brain carrier, you can have your lieutenant in the brain carrier, and then you've got two machine guns in the brain mm-hmm. carrier. Yeah. And I think that sort of, to my mind, makes more sense that like the officer is or like, you know, like the officer adjutant really you know manning the second gun yeah. you know anyone gets too close you know what's going on here um and i think also like maybe if you're a air observer or an artillery observer and you've like done your job you know you've called in the airstrike you've called in the artillery barrage then you know You've now not really got a role on it. You've done your job. Mm-hmm. You're now much safer being in a vehicle than being on the table. But yeah. like a mortar spotter or an artillery spotter, their job really is to actually be spotting, isn't it? Not yeah. And you can't spot from a vehicle. You can't use your special rules. No. From a vehicle, you can't call down artillery barrage. You can't spot. You you know. And so they can't actually do their job. They're not doing their job. I mean. I can understand a spotter getting in to be transported to a place where they then can spot. Yeah. But that's not really what I would be doing, is it? It's just yeah, giving my like, Animaga force field to protect them from being yeah. taken off the table. And, like, I don't know about Hanamags, but I do know, like, there are, and well, there were, like, artillery spotted, like, like, there were armoured vehicles for artillery spotters to use, but I'm pretty sure that they were actually fitted with dummy weapons just so that they didn't stand out on the battlefield. So you, the yeah. enemy can't go, oh, that's got fancy optics for artillery spotting rather than armament. Yeah, there was some Below command. There's a command tiger that was built, wasn't there, that had a fake barrel on it that was just for yeah. watching. But I think, like, I don't know about Dak, but I do know, like, most of those like artillery spotted tanks and that sort of thing were things like the French one-man turret jobs mm-hmm. and like other other captured things which or, or 
like Panzer threes, which have like specific roles mm-hmm. rather than like a hand. And like, if somebody bought one of those and was like, "Yeah, this is my artillery spotter transport," that's it's a slightly more expensive than the Hanamag. It's the same price as the Hanamag, but it can only transport my artillery spotter. I wouldn't really have a, an objection to yeah. that, but then it would be like, that's your armoured car or your tank, yeah. rather than this is just a transport. Yeah, because it doesn't break the rules. It it follows the rules, but um, yeah, it doesn't follow what I would call uh, like the, the code of fair play. Well, no, I, I think it's like even at tournaments, and I think this is this is something I, I I genuinely think is a good thing about bolt action as a game as a tournament. Uh, on the most, on the general part, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Yeah, and I think of all the events I've been to, I have only really seen a handful of armies that i think break that social contract yeah and of the uh, and the reaction of other players to those armies has been quite extreme like you we went to an event years ago and like i think the person who was first or second had like a list of 22 dice mm-hmm. and it was like you know Two inexperienced heavy howitzers, two in it was like inexperienced HE up the wazoo. So yeah. it's like, you know, it doesn't matter that it's, it's inexperienced because you just roll the sixes to hit. And you fire directly, yeah. And like, it did really well. It, it, it looked a very nice army. But following that, people, there was like a lot of, right, right we're putting dice limits in. This isn't a, this isn't a rule, route that we want to go down. Yeah. And then uh, another event, somebody taken uh, Western Desert Indian Armoured Tank Platoon, but yeah. then, then used all the normal British Commonwealth rules and the Indian rules. So they had the free rifle squad and the free tank squad and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, people were taking the, the Western Desert DAC book, which gives you free LNGs, and lots of events were just like, no campaign unit books. You can take one or the other. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think it's like it has a very proactive community that means it doesn't matter like what we're playing. Like at the last Cambridge Too Far, which I think was the biggest ball action tournament ever, um, that was won by uh, somebody playing like the Atlantic Wall. Germans, you know, like we we joke about machine medium machine guns. They had three or six medium machine guns in their army, mm-hmm. um, and like you know, I, I think a lot of it, and you go to these big events, and you see we'll see really interesting, really niche. I mean, these are the Mexicans or something like that, and their armies that will still do quite well. Like it's much more armies are important. But you're you're able to, as a, I think, as a game system, as in the game community, they're like, what is going to win at any cost, and what is? I don't think there's that much math hammer in go like, right, I'm going to take six engineer squads with six flamethrowers and two multi-launchers. Yeah, that do, like you could take that to some events, 
and I'm sure there probably are some events where that happens. But I think you would be pretty much a pariah if you did that, especially specifically in British events. And it, it's not, I don't mean to like go on my high Oscar, you can't play flame throwers and multi launchers. I just don't think that mentality carries across to many bolt action players. And when it does, I think it puts a lot of people's noses out of joints and go, this isn't the game we want to play or in this, it isn't in the ethos of the game that we want to play. I don't know yes. if you agree or if I've gone on a tangent with that. No, no, yeah, it was, a, it was a beautiful tangent of the best. Um, yeah, there's a kind of attitude of um, if you want to play like winner or costs, go play 40k. You know, go and play Warhammer, whatever it is. Um, but this is like a historical game, and there's that level of, well, it's historical. <laughs> and, um, people want more. You know, I think the longer you're in the game, the more you sort of desire to do more interesting historical armies. Um, you know, the, the rarer. So if you go to an event, the, the thing that people go, wow, it's not, wow, you've got such a killy army. It's, wow, you've got. Abyssinians, what on earth is that? What, what have you done there? Where did you get the models from? How did you 3D print them? Tell me more about this army that you've got. You know, people want to show off interesting and historically as accurate as they can with bolt action. You know, armies, you can, there are fractions that do want to do the most killiest lists, but I, I don't think that's the majority of, of bolt action players. At least in my, it may be my experience is, you know, not that broad, but um, it, from the ones I've been to, it's just been people sort of just bringing the really interesting armies and less the killy. Yeah, co completely agree. It's more people are infused with the history or what they are interested in or a challenge rather than somebody worked out this netlist. This is really good. Here we go. We're playing this. Yeah, and I think I would say Warlord do a pretty good job in general in that when a new book comes out and you go to an event nobody it's not like everybody is now playing whatever the latest book is yeah i don't I, there are some books you know, market garden western desert which are simply a power level increase and it's like if you were from a gaming point of view why would you ever play anything else other than these armies? Because they are simply, you know, like, if you're playing mid-war Germans, why would you not play Dak where you get free machine guns? Um, but from that point of view, like, that sort of thing happens sometimes. But as I said, I think those books are very quickly like, right, we're just not using these books. Mm -hmm. These books. But even saying that, when the Western Desert book first came out, like, the events over the following months weren't just a wash with that there were some yeah. players and there was some indian um, army players but that was it but then even like i spoke to somebody who was playing the indian players and like he didn't enjoy the event he was playing at with the army because it was like it isn't it's ahistorical enough to a point that it's almost silly it's almost like a gimmick um and he didn't enjoy it, and he thought, just said, no, next time I'm playing something more rooted in actual reality. Yeah. 
Good. So hopefully our listeners have enjoyed this first games we played. What we what we played? Yes. We played. Let, us, let us know. Yeah, let us know um, if you want more detail, or if you like this, or if you hated this, um, because you know it's a new bit in the show. Um, hopefully, we'll have a few more games to tell you about in the future. Yeah, and hopefully it won't all just be bolt action chat because we know not every one of our listeners is going to be a bolt action player and we, we don't want to make this podcast just a bolt action podcast. It just happens to be a game that we both love and we play a lot. So, thank you very much, listeners, and we'll see you next episode. Goodbye. Bye, everyone.